Welcome to Saturday Evening Torah Class, an in-depth interdisciplinary study of the Hebrew Scriptures. Tonight's lesson is week number 34, Deuteronomy chapter 25. This week we're going to start Deuteronomy chapter 25. And in these verses are five laws about humanitarian and social concerns. And considering this immense tragedy catastrophe in Haiti, this is a good time for something like this. This is going to be followed by an instruction that Israelis are always to remember what the Amalekites did to them and to despise them for it and to eventually annihilate them for it. Let's begin by reading all of Deuteronomy chapter 25 together. Page uh, 224 in your complete Jewish Bibles, if that's what you're using. If people have a dispute, seek its resolution in court. And the judges render a decision in favor of the righteous one and condemn the wicked one. Then if the wicked one deserves to be flogged, the judge is to have him lie down and be flogged in his presence. The number of strokes is to be proportionate to his offense, but the maximum number is 40. He's not to exceed this. If he goes over this limit and beats him more than this, your brother will be humiliated before your eyes. You're not to muzzle an ox when he's treading out the grain. If brothers live together and one of them dies childless, his widow is not to marry someone unrelated to him. Her husband's brother is to go to her and perform the duty of a brother-in-law by marrying her. The first child she bears will succeed to the name of his dead brother so that his name will not be eliminated from Israel. If the man does not wish to marry his brother's widow, then his brother's widow is to go up to the gate to the leaders and say, My brother-in-law refuses to raise up for his brother a name in Israel. He will not perform the duty of a husband's brother for me. The leaders of his town are to summon him and speak to him, and if on appearing before them he continues to say, I don't want to marry her, then his brother's widow is to approach him in the presence of the leaders, pull his sandal off his foot, spit in his face, and say, this is what is done to the man who refuses to build up his brother's family. From that time on, his family is to be known in Israel as the family of the man who had his sandal pulled off. (laughs) No, I'm not making that up. (laughs) If men are fighting with each other and the wife of one comes up to help her husband get away from the man attacking him by grabbing the attacker's private parts in her hand, you're to cut off her hand. Show no pity. You're not to have in your pack two sets of weight, one heavy, the other light. You're not to have in your house two sets of measures, one big, the other small. You are to have a correct and fair weight. You are to have a correct and fair measure so that you will prolong prolong your days in the land Adonai your God is giving you. For all who do such things, all who deal dishonestly, are detestable to Adonai your God. Remember what Amalek did to you on the road as you were coming out of Egypt, how he met you by the road. He attacked those in the rear, those who were exhausted, straggling behind when you were tired and weary. He did not fear God. Therefore, when Adonai your God has given you rest from all your surrounding enemies in the land, Adonai your God is giving you as your inheritance to possess, you are to blot out all memory of Amalek from under heaven. Don't forget. This first law is about the administering of corporal punishment upon a criminal. Specifically, the means of punishment here is called flogging. And the idea is that two men have a legal dispute between them, and so they go to the Israelite law system for it to be judged. This means that a formal court, at least formal for that era, is convened, that a magistrate Here's the case. He renders a decision that by definition will be for one of the litigants and against the other. 
the one that's judged to have been wrong will be flogged. The case presented here is very general in nature, and no specific crimes even mentioned. Now, first we need to see that flogging, obviously, was not the penalty that every person found guilty of some wrongdoing suffered. We have scores of laws in the Torah for which the punishment for the violation is not specified. Therefore, the penalty was often left in the hands of the court to decide, and God was satisfied with this because he had established general guidelines involving punishment. After all, it's just not possible to predict or address every possible violation in advance individually. Now, we're given one explicit case in the law whereby a person must be flogged. And this was back when we discussed about a man who married a woman and then falsely accused her of having not been a virgin at the time of their betrothal. Do you remember this case? Okay. And then their marital consummation. And the man was to be taken to the city gates and he was to be whipped, flogged, for this humiliation of his wife and this assault on his father-in-law's family's honor. Now, as stated in the last words of verse 2, however, the number of lashes is to be commensurate with the gravity of the crime. Now, this principle is itself another one of those general principles that Yehovah pronounced regarding punishment and retribution that is summed up in the eye for an eye law that scholars call lex talionis. Now, we're then told that the absolute maximum number of lashes that can be administered is 40. And that the reason for this is so that the criminal, in this case an Israelite brother, will not be humiliated or in some versions degraded. Why 40? Why not 35? Or 45? Or 50? We're not told. And there's a lot of speculation as to why this number in particular was chosen by Moses. Now, on a practical level, it probably had to do with it being a less severe amount than was typically prescribed by the pagan societies of the Middle East in that era. Ancient records tell us that most Mesopotamian-based cultures specified the maximum number of lashes at 100. Now, as we've studied Torah and the Law of Moses, we've seen many laws that on the surface seem strange as to why they even existed or what logical purpose they could have served. Now, many Christians and Jews have attempted lofty and largely allegorical explanations for some of these laws and And some of those reasons that they came up with have become part of tradition. More often than not, however, those explanations are more fiction than fact. And often, frankly, makes no sense when you begin to understand the culture. Now, in reality, many of the commandments of the law are about some Canaanite practice or ritual um, that the Lord despises. And he just doesn't want the Israelites to mimic it. So he takes that ritual or that practice of the Canaanites and he simply makes a law against it. I mean, one such well-known example is the prohibition against boiling a kid, a baby goat, in its mother's milk. Now, here the decision is that it would be inhumane for a man to suffer more than 40 lashes. And the reason given about it being humiliating or degrading, though, does not mean that being flogged is of itself degrading or inhumane. From a physical standpoint, the idea is on the one hand, too many strokes of the whip could cause death. Just traumatic death. On the other hand, could cause a man to cry to beg for mercy, to break down, maybe even soil himself. Some other unbecoming reaction that's utterly dehumanizing. 
any of these things would bring great dishonor upon him that would last so much longer than any remembrance of the actual crime and and its penalty. See, a person who is punished too much or unreasonably doesn't gain by seeing their wrongness in what they've done. They become cynical. They become embittered. Naturally, this exact principle is repeated for us in the New Testament. Ephesians 6.4 Fathers, don't irritate your children and make them resentful. Instead, raise them with the Lord's kind of discipline and guidance. See, this law about limiting the number of lashes to 40 is just one of the several elements that goes into defining what the Lord's kind of discipline and guidance is. But from a spiritual standpoint, we must take into consideration the divine numerological meaning of the number 40 and the pattern that it presents. 40 is indicative of a time of trial and or preparation. Jesus was 40 days in the wilderness. The great flood involved 40 days and nights of rain. Moses went up to the summit of Mount Sinai and was separated from his people for 40 days while he learned God's Torah. But the people lost faith and turned to idolatry during that time in the absence of their mediator. Jonah warned the people of Nineveh that they had 40 days to repent and receive deliverance or to not repent and face destruction. They did repent within the allotted 40 days so that the Lord didn't destroy them. Notice that inherent in this pattern in God principle is that when the 40 days of trial or preparation is over, Yehovah provides deliverance of the righteous or potentially righteous as opposed to final judgment. After 40 remains hope. Utter, complete, and final destruction for those who are the Lord's is stopped short. And instead there is deliverance. There is redemption from the trouble. Thus, from a spiritual perspective, the urgent instruction of this law to not exceed 40 lashes is because this is a trial for the criminal that is meant not only to punish, but to change his behavior. It's not meant to kill him. It's not his final judgment. It's not meant to bring him to destruction. Now, the next law concerns a prohibition against muzzling an ox while it's performing its job as a beast of burden. And in this case, the job is the threshing of grain. Now, understand that while we can kind of look at this regulation and say to ourselves, well, this seems logical and and the humane and kind thing to do for the animal. In fact, the logic would have seemed odd even counterproductive to anyone of the biblical era. In fact, if one ever hoped to finish the threshing function in a timely manner, the ox had to be muzzled and or whipped and goaded as well. See, the threshing process was that an ox, though it could be other animals as well, either trampled on the stalks of grain with their hooves, or they pulled a kind of sled, right, a a threshing skid over the top of the grain stalks that's causing the ripened kernels to separate from the heads. Now, oxen are grazers, so it's their nature to bend down and constantly eat during the whatever it is they're doing. Okay, This law states that despite the need for productivity, the ox is not to be muzzled, but is to be allowed to graze and eat during this process, even if it slows it up. 
The problem is that from a practical point of view, this meant that to keep the animal moving, it had to be whipped and goaded or just stand there and eat. Therefore, it became the norm of the Hebrews to muzzle the animal and then occasionally remove that muzzle so it could eat. So that first, the spirit of the law of Deuteronomy 25 could be maintained and second, so that the animal did not have to be inhumanly whipped all right, in order to keep it moving if it were not muzzled, thus break the principles of humane treatment of beasts. This principle of not muzzling an ox while he is working now is brought forward into the New Testament in a very interesting context. Turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. First Corinthians chapter 9, page 1430, if you have a complete Jewish Bible. Becky, would you would you turn the air down? Get get the air, the air conditioning coming on. It's a little stuffy in here. We're going to read verses 1 through 14. Am I not a free man? Am I not an emissary of the Messiah? Haven't I seen Yeshua our Lord? And aren't you yourselves the result of my work for the Lord? Even if to others I'm not an emissary, at least I am to you. For you are living proof that I am the Lord's emissary. That is my defense when people put me under examination. Don't we have the right to be given food and drink? Don't we have the right to take along with us a believing wife? as do the other emissaries, also the Lord's brothers, and Kepha, Peter? Or are Barnaba and I the only ones required to go on working for our living? Did you ever hear of a soldier paying his own expenses? Or a planter, or a farmer planting a vineyard without eating its grapes? Who shepherds a flock without drinking some of the milk? What I'm saying is not based merely on human authority because the Torah says the same thing. For in the Torah of Moses it is written you're not to muzzle an ox when it is treading out the grain. If God is concerned about cattle, all the more does he say this for our sakes. Yes, it was written for us, meaning that he who plows and he who threshes should work expecting to get a share of the crop. If we have sown spiritual seed among you, is it too much if we reap a material harvest from you? If others are sharing in this right to be supported by you, don't we have a greater claim to it? But we don't make use of this right. Rather, we put up with all kinds of things so as not to impede in any way the good news about the Messiah. Don't you know that those who work in the temple get their food from the temple? Those who serve at the altar get a share of the sacrifices offered there? In the same way, the Lord directed that those who proclaim the good news should get their living from the good news. Paul directly quotes, if you notice, Deuteronomy 25.4 in his response to this pressing issue. Support for the apostles and disciples who travel to various congregations to preach and teach God's good news that the Messiah has come and sins are forgiven. So the practice is that whether a man or animal, any living creature that works and is productive should be able to enjoy the fruits of his labor. This is rightfully so. The reason that pastors should be paid for their work. They've earned it. Now this does not answer the question, of course, as to whether pastors should be paid less than the average congregation member earns, nor be provided with an extravagant lifestyle. This also in no way says that whatever one gives as his tithes and offerings necessarily all goes to the pastor or to even the local church treasury. 
Let me also be clear about what was not being stated here in Corinthians. This was not a statement indicating that a pastor, a teacher, an evangelist should at all times have all of his personal needs or wants met by the congregation. It depends on the situation. If the person in question has plenty of time to both hold a job and preach or teach, then he should work but also should perhaps receive some wages if he needs them for his time spent away from his job in order to serve the congregation. This view is what most rabbis go by today. If the person was called to full-time service, full-time service, to preach and teach, then during that time the congregation should be sure that his reasonable needs are met. Most, like Paul, kind of fell somewhere in between. His craft brought him some of the needed income, but when he had to leave his craft, sometimes for months on end, to travel and preach, then he needed support to make up for it. The bottom line is that the rule that an ox should not be muzzled while he threshes has always been understood by the Hebrew sages to be kind of more proverb than law, if you would. A a proverb is a wisdom saying, not so much a commandment. A a proverb is a general rule of thumb for living a redeemed life and for making decisions in a way that aligns you with the way God created the universe. It's not a law the violation of which is necessarily punishable or even a sin. Muzzling an ox while he threshes doesn't make the violator of this a criminal subject to a penalty, nor does a congregation not sufficiently supporting a teacher or a pastor make them open for God's wrath. However, to do such a thing is not very wise. It's certainly not kind. And the blessings that God would often like to bestow upon us may well not come about, either as a direct or a natural consequence of ignoring this divine wisdom instruction. Beginning in verse 5 is the subject of what is called levirate marriage. Now, the term levirate marriage is not going to be found in your Bible, so don't look for it. It's a Latin term, based on the Latin word lever, that means husband's brother. The, the, The case example used here is of a man who dies and leaves no son. And so the wife of the dead man is obligated to marry within her her husband's family, or, as the verse states in the the negative, she can't marry a stranger. Further in this case, the deceased man has a brother, and it is the obligation of that living brother to marry the dead brother's widow. Now, since reproduction was always the first aim of Hebrew marriage is demonstrated by the Abrahamic covenant that every Israelite has a duty to be fruitful and multiply. Then the primary purpose of this more or less forced marriage was that the living brother should impregnate the former widow. The first son, son, not child, son, born to this woman would then be considered the son of the deceased man. And as stated in verse 6, the reason for this protocol is so that the deceased man's name will not be blotted out from Israel. Now let's spend a little time with this because it plays a central role in a couple of key biblical stories. Josephus said that the understood purpose, at least in his day, of this law of the levirate marriage was to keep a man's family name from dying out 
And it was also to prevent his property then from being passed on to relatives. Another purpose was so that the widow would be properly cared for, especially in her elder years. The Bible says that the purpose is so that the man's name is not blotted out. Now we've talked about death at length, the afterlife, Sheol, right? And, and, and said, and, 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 and such, in, 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 in much earlier Torah class lessons and in some detail as what concerns what was believed and practiced by the ancients, including the Hebrews. Now, what we see in the biblical era is quite different from what anything we know of today. I mentioned that a kind of ancestor worship was actually practiced by the patriarchs. And that the idea so central to Christianity of dying and going to heaven was virtually unknown in the Torah and was only vaguely implied in some of the Psalms. Rather, what was nearly universally accepted in one form or another in the world of the Old Testament was that the souls or spirits of the deceased continued living some sort of shadowy existence below ground and that it was the solemn duty of their descendants to tend to them. Part and parcel was the belief that a man's life essence continued on in his offspring. Therefore, without offspring, a son really, the man's life essence came to an end. Now, in addition to the ancient beliefs about afterlife, we have also studied at some length the concept of the term name or Shem in Hebrew. Briefly, the term name meant much more and something different in antiquity than it does to us today. Quite literally, the word Shem meant both name and reputation. This is because a man's name often was descriptive of his reputation. In fact, many names given at birth were either historic in that the name described a circumstance, perhaps, concerning that, that individual's birth, or it was prophetic by means of pronouncing that person's destiny in advance. There, there is both superstition and reality involved here. Superstition in that it was thought that by preserving memory of a person's name, his spirit would remain, uh, would remain in existence. Thus we have memorial monuments built with a deceased person's name inscribed on it. This was the beginning of the modern-day idea of tombstones and grave markers. So the notion was that if the corpse's name was still present and his family still spoke it, then his spirit was still operating in some mysterious way. Now, from a reality standpoint, we find many biblical names fully indicative of a mission or a destiny that that person fulfilled. Yeshua, for instance, God saves. But what happened to a man who died childless, or better, sonless? If that happened, then there were no descendants to utter his name carve it upon monuments, keep his life essence alive within their own bodies, within the succeeding generations. There was nobody to tend to his afterlife needs. Therefore, his afterlife existence ceased. And this was a truly terrifying and terrible proposition to them. Now, we find these beliefs almost universal in nature in ancient times, and we find it even mentioned in the Bible. We find both Jacob and his son Joseph insisting 
that they be brought outside of Egypt and buried next to their uh, deceased ancestors so that they could commune with them. We also find this repeated phrase in the Bible. He died and went to be with his fathers. See, this shows us how much the Hebrews continued to believe in some kind of ill-defined afterlife in which not only could the dead commune with other dead, but that the living had obligations to the dead so that their spirits could continue on. Thus, we have another critical reason for levirate marriage. It's all part of the same ball of wax to keep the spirit of the deceased living. If a Hebrew man died without having a son, then his name would die out because he had no male offspring to continue the family line. His life essence would not continue. He would have no descendant to attend to his afterlife needs, but worse his family line name would end. This is the essence of the statement in verse 6, where it says his name would be eliminated or blotted out from Israel. The Lord found this issue important enough to do something about it. Thus, the rules that the brother of the deceased man was to marry the widow and give her children. Since marrying her was not the issue, giving her children, theoretically son, a son, that was the issue. Now I demonstrated to you in the last couple of lessons how we find this amazing progression in Holy Scripture whereby unchangeable God principles are not pronounced as laws, but rather their practice is buried deep within the stories of the patriarchs. Only later did these embedded principles, many of which were more everyday custom than well-thought-out rules, they eventually became well-defined laws with consequences for disobedience to them, and that happened on the slopes of Mount Sinai. Now here I have an opportunity to show you another example. We find the concept of levirate marriage in use among the patriarchs long before there was ever a written law for the Hebrews. Later, well after the law was given about levirate marriage, we'll find it expanded and brought to another level during the time of the judges. But, before Moses, back in Genesis 38, we get the story of Judah and Tamar. Tamar was Judah's daughter-in-law, but she became widowed when her husband, Judah's son, suddenly died, and he left her without children. Now, custom demanded, custom demanded, that Onan, Judah's next son, marry Tamar and give her a child. He reluctantly married her, but he refused to impregnate her. Instead, as the Torah puts it, to spill a seed on the ground. Because Onan was evil then, in God's eyes, for not giving Tamar children, and we're not told why he was evil, God killed him, and now Judah's youngest son had the duty to marry Tamar. Notice, by the way, that indeed Onan did marry Tamar. But it was because he refused to give her a son that God found him guilty of evil. Judah didn't want his youngest son to marry Tamar. He'd already lost two sons by marrying this woman, both of whom died. So he says, no, he's not marrying her. Tamar then eventually tricked Judah into thinking she was a prostitute. She became pregnant by him and produced not one, not one son, but twins. 
one of whom went on to become Yeshua's ancestor. Now the reason Tamar did this was not so selfish as it might seem and has often been taught and preached as a very selfish act. See, it was common knowledge of that era that the woman held the key to the afterlife of her husband. If she didn't produce children, his afterlife ended. Oh, ladies, you really got power. (laughs) Therefore, Tamar went to great length to do something that was likely repugnant to her. Becoming a prostitute, acting like a prostitute, to lure Judah in order to fulfill her duty to birth a son in her dead husband's name, thus assuring the ongoing life of his spirit. See, this is also why God killed Onan. Onan did an evil thing, as it turns out, by refusing to impregnate Tamar. Understand, Onan fully understood that by not fulfilling his duty, his brother's life essence was going to end. Thus, in a spiritual sense, Onan killed the vital part of his brother on purpose out of his selfishness. He killed his brother's spirit. At least that was his intent. Therefore, God killed Onan for refusing to do this duty to avert such a terrible thing. Well, we fast forward now a few centuries to long after the time of the law of liberate marriage was given to, to Moses to the time of Ruth. A man, Ruth's husband, died who had no living brothers. And so it fell to more distant relatives to marry Ruth and give her a son. That man turned out to be Boaz. Now it is true that the story of Ruth also involves the law of the kinsman redeemer. But levirate marriage rules are also present and central to the story. So we see how over the centuries the laws of levirate marriage were practiced in different stages of of Israel's history. But what happens if that deceased man's brother doesn't want to marry the widow? We find out what happens in that circumstance beginning in Deuteronomy 25.7. And it is that the widow brings the recalcitrant brother to the city gates where the elders, who are usually the town's judges, handle the legal matters, and she declares that the responsible party refuses to do his duty. The elders of the town ask him if that's the case, and if he confirms it, then she walks up to him, pulls the sandal off of one of his feet, and then spits. She also makes what amounts to a curse upon the brother, that what he has done to his brother should happen to him. And then he shall be known forever as the unsandaled one. Pretty odd-sounding epithet, I think. Now, this is interesting enough to spend a moment explaining the sandal-removing ritual here. Let me begin by reminding you that sexuality was front and center in ancient cultures, including Hebrew culture, but it's been very buried by well-meaning Bible translators such that we can hardly see it in present-day scripture renderings. Sexuality was not something seen as dirty or taboo, but merely as part of life. Just, Just as much a part of it as breathing and eating. Naturally, there were rules about sexuality, laws against homosexuality, incest, adultery, many other things. But it was these prohibited acts that perverted what the Lord created as normal and vital. Further, sexual illustrations and metaphors and word pictures were part of everyday language 
among the ancients. Again, not as tawdry or suggestive, but merely as a way to communicate in a very well understood and acceptable form. The point is that the ritual of the pulling the sandal off the foot and the spitting were totally sexual in their meaning. Now recall how it is that in Hebrew thought, when a man marries a woman, he essentially puts on his wife as an as a article of clothing, as a garment. She becomes a kind of covering for him, just as he provides a, a different type of covering for her. Thus the Bible will at times refer to a wife as a beautiful garment for her husband. And this is a very beautiful and meaningful metaphor. It's nothing demeaning to a woman. Okay. The sandal in our story, the brother who won't marry the widow, is representative of exactly this sort of imagery. Think of the story of Judah and Tamar. Now, as I explain this to you, the sandal is representative of the woman's reproductive organ. The man's foot represents his. The man, according to the Leverate marriage rules, is supposed to wear the woman's reproductive organ, but he won't. Therefore, in the ritual, the woman publicly removes that sandal from his foot. Next, she spits not in his face, like our complete Jewish Bible and most Bibles say. It says it spits before his presence. Okay, The spit represents his seed. Ancient sages say that the ritual was that the jilted widow spit in front of the brother onto the ground next to his bare foot. You see all the imagery in here now? Okay. This essentially reenacts the narrative of Onan and Tamar, whereby the evil Onan would not place his seed in Tamar, but instead elected to spill it on the ground. Okay. Now, as the final insult on the brother, the widow declared that he would be known as the unsandaled one. That is, the one who refused to do his duty of leverate marriage. Not the part about marrying, but the part about giving the widow a male child for the sake of her deceased husband, his brother. Now, as an interesting aside... Let's take a look at another episode in the New Testament. But this is one where Jesus was arguing with some Sadducees. And it actually involved the issue of leverate marriage. So I'd like you to turn your Bibles to Matthew 22. Matthew 22. We're going to just read seven or eight verses starting at verse 23. Matthew chapter 22, starting at verse 23, which is on page 1252. That day some Sadducees, Sadducees came to him. They are the ones who say there is no such thing as resurrection. So they put to him a shelah, a question, a, 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 a deep theological question. Rabbi, Moshe said, if a man dies childless, his brother must marry his widow and have children to preserve the man's family line. There were seven brothers. The first one married and then died, and since he had no children, he left his widow to his brother. The same thing happened to the second brother, and the third, and finally to all seven, and after them all the woman died. Now, in the resurrection of the seven... Whose wife will she be? For they all married her. Jesus answered, The reason you go astray is that you're ignorant of the Tanakh. By the way, that means Old Testament. And of the power of God. For in the resurrection neither men nor women will marry, rather they will be like angels in heaven. And as for whether the dead are resurrected, haven't you read what God said to you? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. He is God not of the dead, 
He's the God of the living. Obviously, levirate marriage was known in Jesus' day, and he in no way disputed its validity. However, the argument he was engaged in was really all about resurrection. The Sadducees were citing their tradition to Yeshua about resurrection and tried to use the law of levirate marriage to prove that resurrection was little more than Jewish law carried forward into a new physical world ruled by a new physical Jewish kingdom. They saw no heavenly spiritual element to resurrection or to levirate marriage. Only the earthly and physical and political aspects of it. Therefore, they used levirate marriage to argue against Jesus' position. They said that if a man died without children and a succession of his brothers married his widow and each died and each failed to sire a child with the widow and then the widow died, whose wife would she be after the resurrection? With the implication, of course, that the entire purpose of the levirate marriage was not that the widow become a wife, but that she become a mother. The mother of the son of the deceased man. Jesus retorts that to argue this is pointless. Because this will be of no issue in the world to come. A world that will be more spiritual than physical in its nature and dimension after the resurrection. Meaning the general resurrection, not his. Siring children and providing a deceased man with a son would have no more meaning then. Laws dealing with widows and families and ways to avoid social injustices are matters pertinent to the present physical world, not to heaven, not to the future world to come. Further, there won't even be any marriage because our natures will be more approximate to that of angels than that of human beings. Thus, the example of marriage is a binding together of spirits and of perfect faithfulness won't be needed anymore. Let's move on to the next law in Deuteronomy 25. Very oddball one, I think. All right, that we find in verses 11 through 13. And then kind of an interesting second one that follows in verses 13 through 16. Now this oddball law is the one concerning the improper intervention of a woman, a wife, in a fight her husband is in. And the case is that two men get into a fight with one another and the wife of one of the combatants decides she's going to help her husband by grabbing the genitals of his foe. And this law says she's not to do this. And if she does, she should have her hand cut off as a penalty. At least, this is what it appears to say. I must admit that the mental picture I get of this event (laughs) is a little bit hard to believe as something that might even occur. And frankly, the rabbis tend to agree with me on that. I mean, most of the laws that we've read have been enacted to prohibit something that regularly happened but shouldn't and needed to be dealt with or to establish something that needed to happen but it wasn't happening. The likelihood of a woman grabbing the private parts of a man who's in a fight with her husband is just about impossible to imagine. And there's no record in Jewish literature of such a thing occurring. So what in the world is this all about? Well, first... This is about a common civil fight, not a war. This fight is not on a battlefield. It's about two men, two Israelites, disagreeing a little bit too vigorously over something. Second, the penalty of the offending woman grabbing a man's private parts seems completely disproportionate to the sentence of having her hand cut off. Third, the Torah reflects complete aberrance at any kind of bodily mutilation as a judicial penalty. So this this really doesn't make a lot of sense um, in the context of the bigger picture. Therefore, the great Hebrew sages knew that they're going to have to look under the surface to see what was intended here. Now, the general consensus is 
that this law is figurative, not literal, and that the underlying principle, basically, is a fundamental fairness. Because fairness is a a key ingredient to fundamental holiness. A woman grabbing a man's genitals would be a horrible, humiliating experience in that even that era far more even than it would be now. Further, there is nothing to indicate that this fight was causing great bodily harm to her husband. He was about to die or something. Maybe he was just losing. Therefore, for a third party to intervene on behalf of one combatant in this type of situation to take the strong action this woman figuratively takes is patently unfair. It's cheating. It's unwarranted. But it's when we get to move on to the law that follows this one. The law about using correct weights and measures that we really see something interesting. I'm not going to get into the technicalities of it all. But if you'll remember back to your school days in English grammar, just as English literature has has a rhyme and, and meter that varies with what kind of literature it is. Pose, poetry, narrative, whatever. It's that same way with Hebrew literature. And what we find is that verse 13, about not having alternate weights in your pouch, is really an interconnecting bridge between the law of the improper intervention in a fight and the law of honest weights and measures. It's what the writers call a double entendre. It overlaps two thoughts. And the words have parallel meanings simultaneously. Notice that in verse 12, the issue is the male genitalia, and so what immediately follows is about weights in a pouch. Or more literally, it says stones in a pouch. The reference is obvious. I don't think I need to get more graphic than this. Then in verse 14... It speaks of not having larger and smaller weights as measurement standards in your house, which of course connects to verse 13 about having a large and small stone in the pouch. And the admonition of the second law is to give a fair amount when buying and selling according to to one set of weights and measures. So both laws come down to the issue of fundamental fairness. And the use of the words stones and pouch are used to show the connection between the law of the improper intervention in a fight by this woman and the dishonest use of weights and measures to cheat somebody. Okay? We'll continue next week and discuss the law to remember the Amalekites. Okay?